Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Companies Editor Mark Robertson. How are you, Mark? I'm very well, thank you, John. Excellent. Settling into the new role? Uh, just about, yeah. As uh, as you know, we've had the 350 review this week. Baptism of fire? Of sorts. Yeah, no, it, it, was, uh, it was fine, really. But I, I've, I've been in the US for about 10 days and I came back and uh, I hadn't really got into gear. No, no, we, we you didn't get into gear in the US either. No. <laughs> <laughs> Stuck in a snowball on a motor, well, on exactly. a freeway. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it wasn't a relaxing holiday by any means. There you go. Uh, and uh, Emma Powell, news editor Emma Powell, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Excellent. So, yes, we're going to talk about the FTSE 350 uh, review, which is our big annual look at the largest companies uh, listed on the UK market. It's a 40-page standalone supplement where we look at every sector and uh, many, many of the companies within them. And you had the uh, unenviable task of putting this all together this year. It was a great pleasure, actually. Um, there's some really interesting stuff in, in this year as well, including the usual rundown on valuations from uh, James Norrington. Which our readers will find most helpful, I imagine. Yeah, it's, no, it's a great piece. I'm always really, really proud of this. I think the team's done a, a fantastic job again this year. We will talk about a couple of the uh, specific sectors and uh, some broader points, broader observations that uh, that you've made. Um, before we do that, Emma, let's uh, we haven't we haven't had a, a good news roundup for a few weeks. Uh, you've written the the only feature in the the rest of the mag as well, which is uh, uh, another look at outsourcing in the wake of the Carillion saga. Yes. So uh, let's start with uh, the news pages. What have you got for us this week? Yeah, lots of profit warnings this week. Um, so maybe we could start with Dignity. That was about a 40% uh, drop. Uh, obviously, Dignity is the funeral provider, funeral mm. package provider. We have it on a sell tip. But yeah, there's massive share fall. Basically, their warning of lots of pricing competition from people like the co-op, lots of other supermarkets. I believe Sainsbury's does a funeral package now. Dignity is... is uh as you say, Emma, it's one that we, we'd been keeping an eye on for a while. We, we did worry about the model. We worried about the competition. And we worried about the high level of debt that they seem to have taken on in their buy and build strategy. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, and they've actually now, not only have they had to implement um, price cuts, obviously, to, to you know, try and keep up with the competition, it also means that they expect their market share now to decline too. So not good news. And unsurprisingly, we've kept it on a sell. Mm, I mean, the shares don't look overly expensive, but but we think there's worse to come. Um, they're still not the cheapest funeral option on the market, so not by a long shot. And and you know, if you think you know, we've started to see a bit of competition coming through. They're already um, cutting prices, but even after the price cuts, they're still not going to be the cheapest. So I th- definitely think uh, more more bad news to come on that one. And to think, at one stage, this this stock was seen as a banker for for many years, actually. I mean, it was highly rated, it was always highly rated, but there was good reason for that. No, absolutely. This was was a stock market darling. And I mean, you do do wonder, though, you know, the buy and build strategy, when when a company's organic growth is starting to flag, then, you know, supplementing that growth with acquisitions is often a way companies go, but it can disguise a problem. And that seems to be the case here. And with the debt where it is, there's no way they can now buy themselves out of it. Well, exactly. Okay, uh, so bad news at Dignity. Where else have we had profit warnings? M Brown, I notice. Uh... M Brown, um, which was on a sell tape and we actually moved to a hold. Um, the, the, the issue with M Brown actually is that um, it's been growing in one area, its financial services, part of the business, but not in the, the retail space. And, and that's been uh, the real worry. Um, so basically, they issued the profit warning because the contraction in the gross margins for the retail business is actually expected to be worse than expected. 
and actually the uh, margin improvement for the financial services business is going to be better than expected. Now, you might think that is, is that balancing it out? Surely it's good news, you know, that they're having this margin expansion in financial services. But actually, no, because I think people are very worried about the, the rate at which um, the uh, lending at their financial services business is increasing if you then put that against the backdrop of this massive surge in consumer credit and how viable that is to keep going. So I think that's definitely uh, where a lot of the kind of concerns around M Brown Centre. And again, there was a fall of about 15% in the shares uh, on the day. Yeah, indeed. Both, both those companies on the seven days page in the uh, the the worst fallers of the week. Uh, along with Carpet Riot as well, which uh, is not in the mag. Yeah, but, uh, not in the mag. Um, but I mean, that was, you know, that they've had profit warnings. I think it was last October. They kind of first flagged that there was issues there. Again, discretionary spend down. And that's what they blame that I, on. Permanent issues at Carpet Riot, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I've had that. I've had that on a sale when I was covering retail almost more than half a decade ago. Well, if you look historically as well, carpet retailers and gymnasiums are always stand as bellwethers for uh, sort of bear markets. It's, fu- it's funny enough because I'm in the market for a, for a lot of carpet at the moment. Not oh, buying really? it at Carpet Riot. <laughs> buying it from the, the guy down the road, which I think actually might be uh, another big trend in retail. Shop locally. Um, uh, the other big four of the week uh, was Countrywide. Um, again, I'm not sure we've got this in the mag. Have we got this in the mag? Yeah, it's a tip update. Oh, yes, it is a tip update, isn't it? Tell us about that. Yeah, so countrywide, again, um, transaction volumes down, so obviously profits down, and Co- actually... Countrywide being an estate agent. Yes, so this is- yes, sorry. Um, and unsurprisingly, a fellow sell tip, actually today, the day we're recording this podcast, uh, Foxton's has issued, again, a trading update saying that transaction volumes are down, so so revenues are down. Luckily, we have got those both on sell tips then, as yeah. I said. Perma sales uh, have been for for quite some time, uh, and let's uh, let's finish the news uh, off on uh, another uh, bum note. Uh, a bum note this time for the bookies. Uh, this is the lead story this week. Uh, Rumours leaking out about the government's review of the fixed odds bedding terminal industry, and it doesn't look good for the bookies. No, it doesn't. So obviously this is the review into uh, fixed odds betting terminals, otherwise known as the crack cocaine of gambling, where obviously the government is considering whether to reduce the maximum stakes. So at the moment it's £100 to reduce that to either 50 30 or £2. So then those uh, reports from the Sunday Times initially um, uh, a leak from government supposedly about um, the Matt Hancock, the culture secretary, actually thinking about cutting the maximum stake to two pounds, which would obviously be very bad for some bookies. William Hill, in particular, because it's got a very big high street presence. Shares in William Hill actually fell thirteen percent, and in all the other bookies as well, but to a, to a slightly lesser extent. Yeah, I, I don't think anyone can really uh, complain about a, uh, a cut in the uh, the cap on fixed odds betting terms to two pounds a spin. You can still spend a lot of money. Exactly, but, uh, yeah. It's just designed to slow people down, though. Yeah, it's, I, I really don't like these things. But the industry has uh, they've been a, a real profit driver for uh, the bookies. Is there anyone we like left in this sector? GVC, I think, springs to mind. GVC, yes. We uh, actually recently tipped GVC. And obviously, that's in the midst of a, uh, of a takeover, of a merger um, with Labbrook's Coral. Um, but actually, that the way that deal um, was uh, kind of structured is actually quite good because they took into account the fact 
fact that this uh, review was obviously uh, going through. Um, so, you know, we've got Ladbrokes Coral, which admittedly is highly exposed itself, but obviously it's thinking about taking over GVC. The deal still looks likely to go through just because obviously the diversification benefits, but the actual deal includes loan notes, which would rise and fall depending on the outcome of this um, or become worthless, actually, in the event of a, a, a £2 stake, in the event that it is cut to £2, um, which would mean that Ladbrokes shareholders get less, but we're still kind of positive on the deal overall in terms of diversity diversifying those two which in, are both buy tips indeed but i know i noticed from the piece that you know were they to remain independent you know a two pound stake on uh, on on fob tees would uh, would hit their profits by by 62 percent yeah yeah so, it I would mean, be very it's, bad it's a, huge, so it's a no, huge thing yeah it's a no-brainer that this deal goes through i think yeah well, all shareholders would want it to go through absolutely it's a tough time to be a bookie and that's not something you hear very often um okay let's move on from the news let's talk uh footsie 350 review so robbo Tell us about your, your sort of broad thoughts of what we've seen, uh, what we can expect in the year ahead. Okay, well, what's interesting um, about the performance of the 350 uh, over the last uh, year or so, uh, we, we know that it's underperformed uh, a number of its overseas rivals, uh, the DAX, uh, the CAC 40, uh, the S&P, uh, and there's obviously good reasons for this as well. Chief amongst them is that UK um, indices, in particular the UK Benchmark 100, um, always move within a, a narrower band than uh, the, the overseas comparators. And, uh, it, and I think looking forward for investors, uh, th- this is not a bad thing. In fact, many analysts are pointing to the UK as being a relatively good value set against uh, our overseas rivals. Now, the valuations on offer within the FTSE 350 um, are not sustainable or at least are not... Um, explicable in terms of their underlying underlying earnings performance, particularly when you take into consideration the, the high levels of buybacks and the influence of uh, Sterling's devaluation over the last year or so. But again, relative to the, our overseas competitors, uh, the FTSE 100, the 250, and therefore the 350 uh, are looking pretty good value. Uh, the whole index itself rose by about 8% uh, through 2017, which is in line with the benchmark increase as well. Uh, and that, you know, obviously is, uh, you know, it's heavily weighted towards that. So, so what, did, what did well, what did Bandy last year? I mean, let's let's have a look at the uh, on a sector by sector basis. I mean, the, the big big winner um, looking at this was mining. Yeah, and there's um, there's good reason for this as well. I've just got some figures in front of me here. If you if you go right through industrial metals, you're looking at a, about a twenty percent or twenty one percent rise for aluminium, copper. Um, so, so it's driven by the by the underlying the value of the under, underlying commodities. Yes, that's right. And uh, iron ore um, iron ore is trading at about seventy two dollars um, a ton uh, at the moment for sixty two percent fines. Uh, but we can't expect that to, to last through 2018. The Australian government have come out and said that uh, they expect iron ore prices to reduce by about uh, 20% on average through this year. So, um, And that's partly as a result as uh, China continues to rationalise its uh, steel industry. In fact, last year was, was a record year for uh, iron ore um, imports into China. That won't be replicated through this year. Mm. But... Uh, the miners themselves will actually still perform reasonably well, we think. And, and part of this is, uh, I was talking to Alex Newman, our mining correspondent, about this. And um, the miners now, and in fact, resource companies in general, are benefiting from the 
the programs that are undertaken after the uh, after the huge increase in commodity prices uh, in the early part of the millennium as well. What happened, as we all know, is there was the huge write-offs across um, the sector, oil and gas and mining, and basically the the, the companies then had to uh, rationalise their cost base, get rid of non-performing assets and marginal assets. They've done that, and so they're in a much better position now uh, to generate free cash flow, and they bolstered their uh, dividends and their ability to sustain these dividends, even the likes of BHB Billiton, which was uh, under some pressure there. So they're looking much better from that perspective, and therefore that should uh, underpin uh, their valuations going forward. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, Alex is, is relatively confident in this sector. I mean, he, he actually, uh, his tip of the year came from, from this sector. Well, exactly, and, and it is because of these rationalisation measures that have been put in place over the last uh, five, six, seven years. So they're just in much better shape uh, operationally than, the, than they were before the, the, yeah, but the they, crash, as it were. Yeah, but they were profligate uh, in those years, buying assets at the top of the market. And uh, again, it comes back to uh, the issue that we talked about the magazine perpetually, and that's uh, distorted, uh, uh, distorted incentives for uh, directors, uh, the directors are just looking to uh, to boost the top line and and earnings uh, and pay packets a pay, and pay <laughs> packets exactly because I mean you know the incentives are very often linked to uh, to earnings. Funnily enough, the uh, we, we have in our uh, uh, no free lunch column this week, Paul Jackson's looked at Persimmon and the uh, the share scheme there and how how you know the uh, this scheme has created just extraordinary payouts for its Yeah, I think Paul's like a, a dog with a bone in its mouth with this one, but I mean, it's, well, it's, it's right. Well, of course, it's really it, upset quite a lot of people. No, no, it's, it's very insightful stuff. I mean, all, all strength to him as well. I remember our former colleague Alistair Blair was uh, very strong on this as well, and. Mm. Uh, as we are advocates for the retail investor, I think we should, uh, you know, pursue this line. Absolutely. Let's let's head back to the FTSE three for the review. Let's look at the other end. Uh... Which and this is what you've written about in your intro to the piece. Uh, so the worst performing sector is fixed line telecoms, and yeah, this is a handful of stocks, BT, Talk Talk, that have had specific issues. Um, but the second worst performer, and it's a more general sector thing, is oil equipment and services. This, they have had a nightmare, uh, and this is probably not the worst year. Well, it, it isn't the worst year, but but then again, the um, it has to be said that their uh, 2016 was in was a was was a, a kind of recovery year for them, or a partial recovery. But, but I mean, we're, we're talking, everything's, everything's, you know, in reference to a low base here. Um, the, the point I make in the introduction as well is that I've um, highlighted two sectors which I think could actually uh, outperform uh, through this year, and uh, oil services uh, is one of them. Uh, and again, it, it's linked to the, the reasons that I've just outlined as well, the fact that um, uh, oil capital budgets are at least flatline and maybe starting to retrace a little bit now after uh, the, the collapse in oil prices midway through 2014. So, so you had a collapse in oil prices, the, the big producers basically turned off a lot of capex and, and this hit the oil, oil equipment market hardest of all. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, all, all service companies had to rely on their OPEX budgets to a large degree during this fall away because, uh, uh, well, well commenced initiations and finishes uh, reduced uh, dramatically during this period. And um, certain sectors like uh, even uh, onshore uh, US or North American shale, um, the, the well count f- fell dramatically there. This hits uh, certain of our 
certain of the companies in the sector, one of our favourites, hunting quite hard because they, uh, in, in their case, they, pro- uh, they provide a lot of the, um, uh, the fracking equipment, mm-hmm. uh, specialist fracking equipment. But now um, what we're seeing is that, that um, budgets are starting to retrace, albeit, albeit slowly. Uh, the Trump administration has signalled one of the uh, largest expansions of offshore uh, uh, drilling capacity, I guess, uh, in well, since the, the Reagan administration. Um, Alex has been talking to certain industry figures about the, the appetite for that, and it, it is mixed. But we think, at the very least, with oil services, that market has bottomed out, and we're going to see uh, uh, some gradual recovery in the share price as a result. Uh, the other area that I've uh, noted, which uh, and Emma might uh, have some thoughts on this because it's a sector that she's uh, intimately uh, aware of, is is banking um, and UK banking in particular, because uh, you look at it now, and uh, after after many years, again, it's another uh, a sector that's been under the cosh and uh, and is still encumbered by um, uh, regulatory issues going forward. Yeah, I mean, look at, look at the performance of the banking sector in uh, 2017. Uh, the sector was up uh, 11.3%, uh, mid-table obscurity, but but not a performance to be scoffed at, really, given the backdrop. Tell, tell us what's been going on in banking, Emma. Yeah, well, I think uh, the reason for a lot of the gains this year is, well, twofold, really. Firstly, um, you've got banks like Barclays and also RBS, to a certain extent, who've really cleaned up a lot of their balance sheets so with Barclays obviously they sold off Barclays Africa and they've managed to get rid of a lot get rid of a lot of the um, risk-weighted assets to do with their non-core business which has obviously helped then conversely boost their common tier one equity ratio which is obviously vital um, for their ability to pay dividends RBS again even though I mean we still have this bank on a hold it's actually an outsider for us within the sector it's kind of got rid again of a lot of the risk-weighted assets to do with its bad bank which is capital resolution it calls it which is so again it's had a really good improvement in its uh, capital levels and then I think you've got um, other banks so Standard Chartered and HSBC which are obviously very much emerging markets Asia focused they've done very well as uh, sentiment towards emerging markets has improved um, I know people were quite cautious uh, particularly when Trump came in with his, a lot of his kind of protectionism and uh, kind of inflation expectations that maybe emerging markets would suffer and we'd see loads of outflows that, that hasn't happened actually um, emerging market has uh, continue to recover uh, sentiment has continued to recover kind of post 2015 2016 um so that's been good and yet again obviously hsbc has been able to maintain its dividend kind of like the dividend king of the, of the sector bartley's had a bad year from a share price perspective i mean the shares got cheaper as the year progressed why was the uh, sort of action they were taking to stream on the business not not translating into to a better share price performance they've still obviously got the investment banking part of their business. Now, I think, I mean, obviously that's kind of divided shareholders uh, over whether they should have just gone down the Lloyds route, which is to just have a kind of UK, very retail-focused business. But Lloyds, Lloyds weren't exactly stellar last year, the shares. I mean, No, they're very steady, but I'd argue, you, you know, you don't buy Lloyds for growth, you buy Lloyds for income. Mm-hmm. 
really, because it's, it's, it's come good on its promise to keep progressing its dividend. And that's why I think people have bought into Lloyd's. Um, and it's not actually that expensive for, for the income on offer. Um, but I think Barclays, what sometimes its investment bank has really kind of helped push up um, its net interest margin um, as a whole, uh, obviously because interest rates are so low uh, within the UK and kind of the returns you can make on just plain old retail banking is are quite low um, but in other respects you've seen actually an increase in them having to take provisions for bad debts or impairments um, on their credit card business in the US in particular and also just with the investment banking it's a lot more kind of up and down so I think during the third quarter last year it, it really damaged returns for them. What, what do we make of the challenger banks prospects? I mean, they, they, they've been an exciting area, lots of new challenge. I mean, this is a bigger sector now than it, than it has been for a long time. It used to be, you know, just the biggies. It's, it's one of the biggest sectors now. Well, yeah, exactly. Uh, within the FTSE 350, you've got Virgin Money, Close Brothers, Oldermore. Obviously, Oldermore um, has been subject to a takeover. Plant Savings, Metro Bank. I mean, it's, it's an amazing sector now. Yeah, and, and you diverse. know, they've, they've really done amazingly well when you look at you know them compared to the major lenders the kind of returns on equity they offer um, which you know in the case of close brothers can be in the 20s percent their their loan books are just growing so so rapidly um, I guess the question would be can they continue this rapid loan growth in recent years well the past kind of two years uh, they've been able to take advantage of the term funding scheme which is something that Bank of England set up basically allowing them to borrow money at the base rate, um, it was it was intended to kind of combat that ultra low interest rate environment. But you know that closes in February this year. You can draw as much money you want, I guess, to kind of keep lending and keep propelling your loan, you know, your loan books, particularly in asset finance squeeze margins and you know there's a lot of increased competition in that area but the question is obviously when that source of cheap funding goes actually are you going to be able to keep growing your loan book so much I mean the other thing is they're really exposed to buy to let in terms of um, one savings bank so if you believe that the rapidly rising buy to let market if, if some of the steam's going to come out of that they're very highly geared to that yeah, well, certainly the uh, the government's made it a little, lot more difficult for uh, for new landlords. Yeah, I think that market's, market. market's already in trouble, to be honest. It is, but I, as far as I understand it, these guys are more interested in the more professional buy-to-let landlord who who can cope with the uh, the regulatory and taxation changes. Well, exactly. Much more effectively. Yeah. So exactly. So people like Paragon as well, which obviously um, is is again actually yeah in the FTSE 350 and One Savings Bank. Their argument management is always that we deal with the uh, complex applications of professional landlords, and obviously the Prudential Regulatory Authority in September did introduce new requirements um, for underwriting standards for those kind of complex mortgages and they'd say you know we have a lot of expertise in that area so we're perfectly placed to pick up on that Um, I mean as it goes you know a lot of these these kind of guys have had recently had trading updates for the end of last year buy to let is still doing really really well i've got other kind of opinions on asset asset finance which some of them are in because i think the margin pressure going on there is unsustainable um, and i think that could be a worry people like close brothers have tried to get out of that because of that but they have become more highly rated because of the growth on offer whether they can sustain that is another question the analyst uh, outlook on Barclays seems to be polarized at the moment i was looking at some uh, analysis through this week uh, and, and they seem to be rather at odds but what's the what's the general feeling on income prospects for the sector at the moment because there was some speculation that rbs might come back into the fold 
Yeah, I mean, the, the big thing with RBS, I have seen that where people are a bit more positive on in, on income prospects. The big thing with RBS is they've still obviously got, they, they still haven't resolved this uh, settlement with the DOJ in, in America. You know, they were hoping to kind of finalise that settlement at the end of, before the end of last year. They haven't done that yet. So for me, more than any other bank, obviously RBS has been mired in legal disputes. So you don't know the size of the provision they're going to have to take against that. Well, you don't know how that's going to affect their and we're, not, we're still not ratio. quite sure when that's going to come to light either. Exactly. What's kept me, I know our tips editor, Algie Hall, has, has some kind of differing opinions on RBS to me because, you know, the shares have come back. For me, that's it's just too much of an uncertain one. Okay. Okay. Okay, interesting. Um, let's talk outsourcing. Now, you didn't write the piece for the FTSE 350 review, but you've revisited, uh, as I said, the uh, the sector this week in a, in a feature for the magazine. Uh, and really kind of looking at some of the, the, the kind of more detailed financials behind the sector to, to understand, you know, what the prospects of recovery here are. Yeah. Talk us through, talk us through the, the areas you've looked at. Well, there's a few areas. I mean, actually... Actually, I think the, the, the accounts of outsourcers are fascinating in lots of ways. Um, and when you examine them, you do kind of realise that a lot of the reasons kind of Carillion blew up, even though uh, it's important to say that the government has said that, you know, while they while they have a lot of these companies, the outsourcers they use on a kind of health watch, they don't think any are in a comparable position. Um, but but when you look at the, the accounts, you can actually see a lot of common trends coming through. Um, so one might be... Um, and this won't be a surprise to investors in Interserve, or Mighty indeed, uh, there's a lot of kind of rising one-off items, which is very interesting to look at. You know, people like Mighty and Interserve in particular, if you look at kind of uh, one-off items, you so know, what, exceptional what items. Might it, like restructuring costs? So restructuring or? costs, um, provisions they've had to take um, against... So the, these are on contracts that have gone... Perhaps, contracts, contracts that um, haven't made as much money as they thought. Yep. Contracts they might have had to have exited, like... In InterServe case, uh, the Energy for Waste contract, which mm-hmm. has obviously been the, a massive, massive problem for them. And then, obviously, uh, in like Capita's case, it could be uh, for business restructuring costs because they're constantly splicing their business up um, and selling off businesses. It goes um, back to that point we, we mentioned earlier about buy and build. So Capita has been been a buy and build model. Mighty has been a buy and build model. Yeah, a- it, and, and arguably that has that has obscured some of the, the realities of underlying trading. Yeah, I think I think Capita actually is the probably one of the best examples of this in the outsourcing sector. Um, You know, for the past decade, they've kind of organic growth has been very inconsistent if you look at it. Um, And obviously the the initial profit warning in 2016, uh, part of that was, you know, organic growth is going to be lower. But actually, if you look back across the past decade, it's been very, very inconsistent. What they've done is they've kept acquiring so many businesses. So they've acquired loads of businesses and then they've constantly changed their divisional structure. So it's it's also means it's very hard to actually compare like for like each year um, for shareholders. Um, but another consequence of that is that they've also then incurred loads of restructuring costs. Um, so, or, or had to, you know, uh, write off contracts associated with certain businesses because actually you know, it hasn't been as valuable as they thought it would be, a certain acquisition or or whatever. So um, that's really interesting. Um, again, and, and also, also meant that their the debt has gone up and up and up, which also is kind of a vicious circle because it means you can no longer keep just making acquisitions which, to sustain your growth. Exactly what we talked about with Dignity. Yeah. Uh, let's talk 
about the other metric you, uh, the other couple of metrics, in fact, you look at? Accrual rates uh, are interesting. So accrual rates are basically uh, money you you are waiting to receive from your clients. Exactly. So you might book it as revenue, but you haven't actually received the cash. I mean, this is a major kind of structural issue, I think, with outsourcers, which just makes the business model a lot riskier because their contracts are so long term. So, you know, you can say, I think I'm going to have this much revenue from this contract. So you book it. But actually, it might turn out that, A, you know, you, you don't receive as much money uh, for it as you think you're going to get. Or sometimes, actually, you uh, you actually can't complete the contract for the amount of money you thought you could. Because obviously, you know, across the outsourcing sector, I think everyone's just competing for, you know, the same contract. So it's going lower and lower and lower. Um, but sorry, going back to the issue of the, the receivables to revenue. Um, I mean, you look at a company like Interserve, um, also Capita, they've got some of the uh, highest uh, accrual rates in the sector if you go past over the, the past decade, um, which just again, you know, creates an element of risk there because it just means, you know, you're never quite certain actually what you've got coming in. Yeah, well, I mean, cash, cash is something I know you're uh, particularly obsessed with, Robbo. Yeah, and, uh, well, uh, what, what, what is this interesting? And is, rightly well, so, and rightly so. Yes, because, I mean, we, we've had some um, uh, major reforms to the way that uh, companies uh, have to account for their sales, uh, which was feed into cash flow statements this year. IFRS 15 uh, comes to mind, and I don't know this if that had any bearing on uh, what's happened uh, recently uh, with Carillion. But we we're expecting um, we're expecting some uh, surprises in the upcoming results season on on that basis. Okay, so that could have an effect on uh, on the financial reports coming out of some of these companies. Yeah, I have no doubt in the weeks and months ahead. Okay, this sector sounds like it has some problems to to overcome, some some kind of underlying challenges, which uh, which are quite are quite challenging. Is there any hope that these companies can mount a turnaround, get themselves in better financial shape? The immediate response for a lot of these companies, Mighty, Capita, Interserve, has been, right, let's cut costs. Okay, so it's like, okay, you can do that. And obviously, that's what we kind of saw with G4S and Serco. They really stripped back their focus because, again, they were like these sprawling giants. So they really stripped back their focus and said, right, we're going to concentrate on UK. Those companies have seen a bit of an improvement. But I, I think you mentioned that they, they basically uh, got out of a lot of contracts that were losing the money. So. Yeah, which obviously you have to take provisions against. Take but, provisions, no, that's but once, fine. You once it's done, that. it's done. Yeah, you could see that as a short-term hit. But for me, really, why I think we're bearish on this on this sector is it's just the fundamental problem of actually how are you making money in this sector you know the work is so low margin most of it you know it's cleaning contracts and things like that it does seem and even actually Rupert Soames chief exec of Serco when he when he took over he said the the problem was is that we were just bidding in for so much work just trying to win it almost at any cost rather than thinking I need to win work that's going to be profitable that's been the real that's the real real issue for these outsourcers yeah you know you can take the short-term hits and think yeah i'm going to reduce my debt which is obviously good i'm gonna you know get out of a lot of these bad contracts contracts but you've actually got to be able to make money going forward and if everybody if it's just a race to the bottom and everyone's bidding in at any cost you know how are you actually going to do that margins are so weak in this sector it's it's a strange old thing 
outsourcing. There's a popular narrative out there that outsourcers are basically raping the public purse and making huge amounts of money out of public services, but they're not. They're not making and, and, a lot of you know, money. You hear the, the idea, you know, PFI, it's okay, some, some companies may have done very well out of that, but the idea that, that these companies are making huge amounts of money at the expense of the taxpayer, just, it just sort of doesn't stand up to scrutiny here. No, it's, it's very, it's incredibly, incredibly low margin work. Yeah, I, I find it very uh, odd. The, the fact that it's low margin work... Um, is why we avoid most of the companies in the sector. That's not the case for all companies in the sector. Babcock, we, we've talked about it a number of times in recent weeks, but it's targeting very specialist outsourcing yeah, services. So, which well, means I, I think that's the key, isn't it? Specialisation yeah. is the key because when you... It's high barrier to entry as well. So if you're doing a lot of work, you know, on behalf of the MOD and things like that, that's... That's why, actually, I think Babcock is the is the only company, the only outsourcer we have on a buy because it's very high uh, barrier to entry work, and it also for that reason, you know, you look at its free cash flow conversion is very good. Its debt's been quite steady, but you know, it's not going down the facilities management kind of low margin route that Mighty and Interserve have done. It is kind of nuclear decommissioning work and you know defence work, which is you know, high barrier to entry, you've differentiated yourself. Yeah. You, you've got companies uh, from a slightly different sector, Amec Foster Wheeler, who are in in decommissioning as well. And as you say, this is, isn't open to everyone. You have to have specialist skills and it's much easier as a result then to get some uh, clarity on, on the pr- pricing question. I think it's what Warren Buffett might have called a moat. It's a defensible position that these companies have. Okay. It means they can protect their margins. And I, th- I think there's more flexibility, inbuilt flexibility with uh, MOD, with a lot of MOD contracts as well, especially yeah. for hardware. Okay, there you go. All right, well, that's, uh, that's a very brief look at a couple of sectors in the, the FTSE 350. Um, if we sat here and went through them all, we would be here till uh, tomorrow morning. So we won't do that today. I will just encourage you all to go away uh, and read it and keep it on your desk all year. We, 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 we produce it as a standalone supplement, so you can, can do that and refer back to it and, uh, and some of the numbers that we, uh, we put in there as well. Well, it'll be interesting a year from now what we'll be saying as well, but there's, there's a couple other points uh, I'd make as well in, in terms of valuations. Um, in the early part of this year, the uh, sterling is appreciated against the dollar quite significantly, and uh, that's obviously going to feed into earnings for uh, 350 companies as well. Uh, I think something like uh, 78% of uh, earnings for the FTSE 100 companies are uh, denominated in overseas currencies, pr- predominantly the dollar, so that's going to have a, a major effect uh, on earnings. And assuming, assuming it sticks at this level, but uh, yeah, I know, you never there, know with currencies these days. Well, exactly. What, what but I mean, it, it may bring. If, if, this is, um, if this is part of a trend, that's something to look at. Uh, another area as well as um, be uh, uh, sort of 10-year T-bills. I, th- I think the main risk to valuations in the market at the moment, which are very difficult to support from uh, a fundamental level, um, the, the main danger is with uh, interest rates and uh, the majority of uh, fund managers in the US and in this country as well would, would see this as, as the prime risk factor to valuations. If 10-year uh, T-bills as well, if they move up to uh, 3 to 3.5%, then that uh, constitutes a, a major danger for equity values. Okay, well, we'll have to keep an eye out for that. Okay, uh, thank you, Robbo. Thank you, Emma. Um, plenty more in the magazine this week. Uh, the results section is a little bit bigger than it was uh, previous week, and it's going to get busier still as we, uh, we start, we're starting to crank up towards the results season. Yes, so, uh, I mean, lots of pre-close uh, or actually closing updates today, so as yeah. Emma mentioned before. So. No rest for the wicked, eh? No rest for the no. wicked. Uh, the usual tips, the usual comments and, uh, and tip updates. We have a, a stock screen from Algie Hall, the Habit All Stock Screen, which is a, which is a pretty tremendous performer, and Harriet 
Uh, Russell has uh, has revisited uh, the uh, high street updates we've been talking about for the past few weeks in the Sector Focus. So, uh, anyway, thank you all for listening. Pick up the magazine in all good news agents, the FTSE 350 review. As I say, we've got a 40-page pullout. So it was a big old effort this week, so well done to everybody. And we'll be back next week. Speak soon. Goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.